Hi, thanks for joining us on Him We Proclaim with our Bible teacher, Dr. John Fonville. We are continuing the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. John has entitled the next several messages, The Peace of the Church. Is Jesus interested in there being peace in his church? Absolutely. And what disrupts that peace is tolerating sin, false teachers, and their false doctrine. It's upsetting to believers and disruptive to the gospel going forth. One could say it's an age-old problem. The teaching today will give us a good foundation about this important topic to believers. Here's John with the Peace of the Church, Part 2. In his Institutes, John Calvin reminds us that the purpose of discipline, he says this, is that the good not be corrupted by the constant company of the wicked as commonly happens. He says, for such is our tendency to wander from the way because there's nothing easier than for us to be led away by bad examples for right living. It's exactly what Paul says here in, second, in, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He commands the faithful members of the church, don't associate with these disorderly church members because if you do, you're going to be negatively influenced by them. He says, instead... Follow and imitate the example of a godly work ethic that I, Silas, and Timothy modeled for you and taught you so that you'll be positively influenced so that the peace of the church will be intact and preserved. Nothing is more destructive to the church than false teaching. And nothing is more destructive to the church and false teaching, but it's resulting disorderly behavior because of its negative effects on the church. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul is telling Timothy to confront false teachers and false teaching in the church, he says, Timothy, uh, he compares false teaching and false teachers to gangrene. And he does this to highlight the negative effects that false teaching has on the church. Paul says to Timothy, if left unchecked, false teachers and their false teaching will spread like gangrene throughout the whole church body. And so he says, he says to the church in Thessalonica, discipline is necessary to protect the church from false teachers and their negative influence on the body. Second, listen to what Paul does. This is verses 9 through 12 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says that, and he's already taught them this, that discipline protects the church's reputation and witness in the community. You know, I've been working for seven years in, the, in both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and you have the Roman Catholic Church uh, abuse scandal. I have talked with unbelievers in the streets of, of, of many cities, the north and the south. And one of their chief complaints is about the hypocrites in the church who abused children, and the church covered it up, did nothing about it. It's an almost insurmountable cultural ill sin that has arisen in that culture to keep people from hearing the truth of the gospel. Persistent, uncorrected sin not only spreads like gangrene within the church, but it results in a bad witness outside of the church to the world. We, we see this not only in the Roman 
church around the world today, but we see this in evangelical churches, and we, we see these, all of these, these abuse scandals of children, which is why we have asked every leader in our church to take that, that abuse training if you want to serve our children in this church, because we are trying to do everything we can to protect our church, proper discipline, proper order in the church, because we not only want to protect our children, but we want to protect the honor of Christ and his gospel in our community. Paul had written to the Thessalonians, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He had written to them earlier about the importance of maintaining their witness to unbelievers in his first letter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 9. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You're loving, but get better at it. Do it more and more. And he says, here's how you love more and more. Verse 11, aspire to live quietly. Don't be a busybody. Aspire to mind your own affairs. Don't meddle in the church. To work with your hands. Don't leave your day job and try to be a self-appointed teacher in the church and lead the church astray. He says, do these things as we instructed you. Why? Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. That means maintaining the witness and reputation of Christ and his gospel in the church to unbelievers. And then he says, and be dependent on no one. Sponging off fellow church members in the first century would have been looked down upon socially. And this would have impeded the gospel mission and witness of the church in Thessalonica. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy came to this young church. And Paul says in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians that they not only modeled how not to do that, but they taught. They gave them the tradition, the teaching of the apostolic doctrine of how not to do this. They showed them how engaging in legitimate work aids rather than obstructs one's witness to unbelievers. How you work matters greatly to the gospel and its witness in the church. And so rather than corrupting their neighbors by spreading false teaching, rather than using their neighbors by sponging off fellow church members for an illegitimate work, and thereby damaging the church's reputation to outsiders, Paul says, both in First and Second Thessalonians, he says, I urge you, let your brotherly love for one another increase more and more. Because when you love someone, you don't corrupt them with false teaching. And when you love someone, you don't mooch off them, but you work to benefit them. And so legitimate work is the arena where our faith, Paul says, works through love to serve and benefit our neighbors. Brotherly love, he says, would lead these members to refuse to become burdens on other people in the church, to refuse to entertain false teaching from these false teachers. But out of love, they would be productive members in the society in which they live, and therefore their legitimate work would contribute not only to the needs of the church, but also to the witness and mission of the church in the society in which it was founded. 
But the problem is that the church pays no attention to sin in its midst, either doctrinal or behavioral. The, the negative effect on the church's reputation to an unbelieving culture is greatly damaged. So the church, Paul says, you can't tolerate this. Third, he says, discipline is necessary because discipline aims towards repentance and restoration of sinning members. This is what we'll look at when we come to verses 14 through 15. For now, let's just read it, make a couple observations. We'll come back to it in more detail. But listen to what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, so if any church member who's been confronted with both our model of life and our teaching, which has come from Christ himself, which we'll see when Paul says, I command you in, in Christ to do this. <laughs> if an apostle is speaking, it's Christ speaking. So it's, it's a powerful command that he gives. He says, if, if believers, if any members in the church don't obey this, he says, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard, his, regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, we will have much more to say about Paul's command here concerning the purpose of discipline for those who refuse correction in the church. But we simply know that the purpose of discipline is to bring about repentance and restoration of sinning church members. That's his purpose. Listen to John Calvin in his Institutes when he writes about discipline. If you want to read about wild stories of discipline and disorderly behavior in the church, read Calvin's biography. <laughs> Geneva was a mess. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He would be preaching and they would break out in fistfights while he was preaching. They would be hurling slanderous words to him while he was preaching. He would be receiving death threats while in the pulpit while he was preaching. Quite a disorderly place. Reformation can be quite messy at times. But John Calvin was writing in his institutes about the purpose of discipline. And he says, God has commanded this through the apostle so that those who are unwilling to repent might be overcome by shame for their baseness so that they begin to repent. They who under gentler treatment would have become more stubborn. So profit by the chastisement of their own evil is to be awakened when they feel the rod. The apostle means this when he speaks. If anyone does not obey our teaching, note that man and do not mingle with him that he might be ashamed. Now we need to know carefully here, and as I said, we'll come back to this in detail, but we just need to know carefully here that the purpose of discipline is not to publicly embarrass a sinning member in the church. That's not what Paul's saying here. Church discipline can be used to really hurt people. That's not its purpose. The word translated shame could well be translated that he should be turned. The purpose, Paul says, of disciplining an erring believer who refuses the instruction of the church is to help that believer see the error of his way or her way, which when they see their sin, they have a sense of shame for it. It's not to shame them. Do you see the difference? God's law reveals our sin, and when our sin is revealed to us, we have a sense of shame for it. But that is greatly missing in our day and age in our culture, isn't it? 
We need to recover a sense of sin as shame. Realizing the, 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 the enormity of it, both towards God and against the church. And so Paul says, discipline this erring believer so that they might see their sin, have shame for it, so that they might be turned back again. Repentance and restoration is the goal, not embarrassment. Disciplining disorderly church members is for the purpose of, Paul says, turning them back. That's repentance. Why? Why does he want to turn them back? Because number one, he doesn't want the infection of gangrene, false teaching, and false teachers taking a permanent hold on them. And second, he doesn't want that false teaching, that infection spreading throughout the body so that others are harmed by it. And so in the end, discipline hopefully results in either the conversion of an unbeliever or the restoration of a believer because the goal is the peace of the church, which brings us to the fourth purpose of discipline that Paul teaches us here in chapter 3, verse 16. Paul will conclude 2 Thessalonians with a wonderful prayer. And it's not throwaway words, but it's actually the point of his letter. And he concludes his letter with a prayer for peace. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. And how will this happen? The Lord be with you all. What do we say in public worship week after week? The Lord be with you and also with you. Those are not throwaway words to just sound fancy. That means something. This is where it comes from. The Lord be with you all so that peace in every circumstance will reign in the church. So what I want to do is note, just as we finish with this, discipline preserves the peace of the church. That's the fourth purpose. I want to show you, just highlight two quick points about that. Paul teaches us here that false teachers and false teaching are schismatic. False teachers... False teaching, when you corrupt the hope of the gospel, the second coming of Christ, Paul says that is disruptive to the peace of the church. This is how one scholar says it. He says, we too often think that those who habitually oppose false teaching are pugnacious and cause dissension, and that peace comes by agreeing to disagree. Although this is true about certain things, there are a number of issues about which the church must take a stand. The deity of Christ, the Trinity, justification by faith alone. He says to gloss over disagreements in these more significant areas is to have a superficial peace at the cost of the gospel, which is ultimately no true peace. I think it's just very important for us to note what the Apostle Paul here is that false teachers and their false teaching produced the disorderly conduct of some of the Thessalonian believers in the church. That's what produced it. Some of these Thessalonian believers disorderly living both in doctrine, a false view of the second coming of Christ, and the resultant negative behavior going about the church, leaving their day jobs, sponging off other believers to support their teaching ministry with their newfound truth. 
That was all the result of false teachers in the church and the false teaching they brought to the church. This disorderly living, Paul says, is threatening to destroy the peace and unity of the church in Thessalonica. And Paul says, this cannot be. So let us note carefully that it is false teaching and it is false teachers that disrupt the peace of the church and divide it and destroy it. But second, Paul says that the ultimate goal and the main point of discipline is to preserve the peace of the church. Chapter 3, verse 16. It's important for us to understand that God values peace in his church. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, the Apostle Paul says that the purpose of Christ's death on the cross was to bring, quote, peace to his church, peace between warring factions of Jew and Gentile who hated each other. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, one body, so making peace. And through this peace might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing his hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles. And he preached peace to those who were near, you Jews, to make you one unified body reconciled through the cross in Christ to make peace. And because of this atoning work of our Lord, he says in chapter four of Ephesians, therefore, therefore, in light of the work of Jesus to bring peace, he says, I urge you, chapter four, verse one, I urge you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called How does that look? Verse three, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. False teachers with their false teaching bring disorder into the church. Paul is teaching us that peace is the absence of disorder. Do you hear that? Peace is the absence of disorder. What is disorder in 2 Thessalonians? It is a false teaching about the hope of the gospel, the second coming of Christ, and the resultant behavior that results from false teaching. Peace is the absence of that. Positively, peace is the presence of order. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the disorder of the Corinthian church? You want to talk about disorder in the church, just read 1 Corinthians. Massive disorder in that church. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 to to bring order, he says, to maintain order in the church. 
Do you know what the, the, do you know what peace is? It's the presence of order. That is the presence of pure doctrine, a pure gospel. And then the ethical behavior that results from that pure teaching. And so one of the main themes of chapters two and three is that of lawlessness. Back in, just really quick as we finish, look at, look at, chapter, uh, look at chapter two, verses three and seven. Paul talks about this lawlessness. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, the man of lawlessness. And then he says in verse seven, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the church. This disorderliness, this lawlessness, this unwillingness to submit to the tradition that the apostles had given. And so Paul, when he confronts the false teachers and false teaching in chapter two, is now showing you what results from it in chapter three. And so he aims, this disorderliness is false teaching and the unruly lifestyle that results from it. He aims to bring that disorder back into order so that peace reigns in the church. So as we think about 2 Thessalonians and we look at what Paul teaches us, the wisdom that we are given here, 2 Thessalonians is a letter all about the second coming of Christ. Every chapter, all three chapters is about the return of Christ. It's about the new creation that Jesus will usher in when he comes again. And, and back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, Paul says that when Jesus returns, this new creation, listen, will be perfectly characterized by peace. Why? Because the, the absent, there will be an absence of all persecution. This church was being severely persecuted. No more persecution, peace. No more tribulation, peace. No more suffering, which they were suffering, there's peace. No more false teaching, chapter two, but peace. No more disorderly behavior that results from false teaching in the church, there will be peace when Christ returns. And so we need to keep in mind that Paul, when he wrote this letter, he wrote it to a group of very, very young green believers in a very young church plant in Thessalonica who are being persecuted for their faith. And so he's teaching them that God's peace is not needed merely to have internal harmony in the church, but peace is the key ingredient for those who are suffering so they'll persevere. When you're going through suffering, what usually is the first thing to go? Peace. And what do you need most to persevere? Peace. These young believers were facing persecution and tribulation, Paul says, and he says, you have to have peace in the church or else you're not gonna make it. Paul believed that with the first coming of Christ, the new creation had begun. If any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. And with this new creation, this new order of peaceful and reconciled relationships between God and one another now exists in the church, or it's supposed to. And so discipline, he's teaching us, is necessary to preserve the peace of the church because the ultimate goal, he says in this letter, is God's glory shining in the church 
as God's people have this ever-deepening fellowship of peace, not only with their Savior, but with one another in the body. And that's Paul's whole argument of this letter, and that's what we'll see in the weeks ahead as we dive into this chapter on discipline. So let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy to us in your Son. We thank you that you have given to us these words of wisdom from Paul. We pray that in our church, as in Thessalonica, not disorder, but order would reign in this church and peace would reign. We pray you would protect this church from false teachers, the negative effects that they have on the body as Paul teaches us here. And we pray that you would help us to always faithfully teach your gospel and live lives of, of not disorder, but order in response to it so that the peace of the church can thrive and the mission and witness of this church and the reputation of Christ and his gospel can flourish as Paul prays for in this letter, that the gospel we pray would spread rapidly and be glorified. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Peace of the Church from the series called The Glorious Second Coming of Jesus Christ. More from this series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time 